Welcome to the She Who Overcomes podcast. I'm Mandy B. Anderson, and a few years ago, I started a life and business coaching company with my bestie. I'm a wife, a business owner, a coach, a speaker, and the author of the book that inspired this podcast, She Who Overcomes, Rising Out of the Ashes of Your Circumstances. I'm also training to run my first half marathon. Oh, and did I mention I'm doing all of this while overcoming a life-threatening illness called cystic fibrosis? It's true. And hey, if I can rise up, so can you. Each week on this podcast, I'll be here to encourage and equip you with the skills you need to rise up as the successful overcomer you were designed to be. So grab your coffee and let's hang out. Welcome back to episode two of the She Who Overcomes podcast. Today, I'm going to continue reading my book to you. So we're going to get started with chapter one from the book, She Who Overcomes, and it's called She is Born to Overcome. In 1981, the medical outlook for a baby born with cystic fibrosis was not good. It was known as a child's disease because children rarely reached adulthood due to its life-threatening severity and complications. 65 red roses symbolize this disease, a beautiful symbol for a treacherous disease known for suffocating its young victims to death. That was the reality of cystic fibrosis in 1981. The story goes that a child once had difficulty pronouncing cystic fibrosis, so she would go around telling people that she had 65 roses. Well, Mark and Mary Brockle were a young married couple preparing for the birth of their first child. One day, in the first trimester of her pregnancy, Mary found herself visiting a friend whose baby girl had recently been diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. She observed her friend giving her baby percussion, a therapy used to help loosen the mucus in the lungs. With cupped hands, the young mom was lightly pounding her baby's back, chest, and sides. Thump, thump, thump. Thump, thump, thump. The rhythmic sound echoed through the room. As she watched this mom diligently perform the task of clearing out her daughter's lungs, Mary thought to herself, I don't think I could ever do that to my baby. Time passed and Mark and Mary Brockle welcomed their daughter into the world on December 4th. She was born a few weeks early and weighed 4 pounds, 9 ounces. When their daughter was 4 months old, Mary's mother, Agnes, kissed the baby's forehead and told Mary that it tasted salty. Agnes knew that a distant family member had been born with cystic fibrosis several years earlier, and she reminded Mary that one of the symptoms was salty skin. Mary thanked her mother for the information, but brushed it off, saying, Oh, I'm sure that's not it. Deep down, she believed that bad stuff didn't happen to her family. It happened to other people. Yet there was no denying that something was terribly wrong with their little girl. At six months old, she weighed only 10 pounds and had been diagnosed with a failure to thrive. She was sick with pneumonia or bronchitis often and spent more time in the hospital than a newborn baby should. On Memorial Day, 1982, 
After a long six months of battling this unknown sickness that never seemed to go away, Mark and Mary ditched their plans to visit their family and finally met with a specialist who confirmed what they didn't want to hear. Their precious little girl had cystic fibrosis. Denial, disbelief, and fear hit them like a ton of bricks the moment the doctor looked at them and said, I hope you have good health insurance. They nodded their heads yes, but they were in shock. Mark recalled hearing that the outlook for a baby with cystic fibrosis was not good, that it would be a miracle if she graduated high school. Their doctor reassured them that although that was a very real possibility, the advancements in medicine had come a long way, and it was becoming more and more likely that their daughter could live to be 18, maybe even 20 years old. Within a week, they were jolted into the unknown world of breathing treatments twice a day and having to learn how to mix the medication for each one. Doctor visits would now be a monthly requirement. So would pounding their daughter's chest so the mucus could be loosened up and she could cough it out. Suddenly, the thing Mary once thought she could never do was becoming her new normal. Even in the midst of fears and questions about the future, They determined to do their best for the sake of their daughter's health. They made sacrifices and vowed to give their only child the best life they could. They decided to give her a fighting chance. And they prayed. Through sinus surgeries and hospital stays, they never failed to remind their daughter that God was in control. They prayed for healing and sought godly wisdom. They taught her to be responsible but mostly they taught her to walk by faith. Decades later, Mary would recall a prayer that she remembered whispering when their lives forever changed on that long ago afternoon. It was a prayer that helped her stay focused on God through it all. It was simply this, I won't ask why me, Lord. I will simply ask, why not us? We will trust you to lead us through this. Mark and Mary Brockle were, and continue to be, overcomers who walk by faith and believe in miracles. They are my parents, and I'm forever thankful for their sacrifices and examples. I was born with cystic fibrosis. More importantly, I was born to overcome. Obviously, I did go on to graduate high school. I even got married. I remember the first time I saw my husband, Nate. We were at a college youth group meeting, and I was singing a song as part of worship. I did not know his name, but I remember seeing this tall, handsome man with dark hair and a goatee sitting in the audience. He smiled at me and continued to worship. A few weeks later, I was introduced to him at a prayer meeting. His heart for God was one of the most attractive things about him even though I was completely oblivious that there was any attraction there at all. We became fast friends. Best friends. He even vowed to help me get a date with a friend of his that I had a huge crush on. However, that particular date never happened, because Nate and I spent all of our time together. After all, that's what best friends do. Several months later, we realized our best friend status had grown into a full-blown crush for each other. 
We began dating soon after. From the moment I met him, I knew that Nate would be in my life forever, even though, at the time, I wasn't interested in him romantically. It just felt like home. He was trustworthy and made me laugh. He also wasn't scared off by or afraid of cystic fibrosis. That was important. We got married on August 10th, 2002, and our life together began. Seven years later, we were confronted with financial hardships due to mistakes and stupid decisions. We were in debt up to our eyeballs and didn't even know it. It happened slowly, with small decisions and seemingly harmless habits, a splurge on a business suit here, an overly priced car that we didn't need there. Oftentimes, I would get upset that my husband was working over 60 hours, so I would find my happiness at the end of a shopping spree. Only it really wasn't happiness. It was more like a straight shot of adrenaline mixed with a side of guilt and shame. I had a shopping addiction, and he just wanted me to be happy. We were both totally unaware what real happiness and joy was. So with each swipe of our credit cards, we found ourselves drifting further apart from each other and deeper into the pit of debt. When we finally figured it out, we were faced with either filing bankruptcy or selling everything we owned to pay our debts and begin a new lifestyle. Our pride kept us from looking at bankruptcy, so we pulled up our big kid underwear and began selling our possessions and scaling back on what consumed our lives. Five years later, after paying off $160,000 of debt, we found ourselves debt-free with a new financial outlook. There's obviously more to this story, but we will visit those details in later chapters. The point right now is that we recognized a huge obstacle in our lives and we did something about it. In doing so, we healed the problems in our marriage and grew closer. We overcame it. Why? Because we were born to overcome. Now, one might think that overcoming cystic fibrosis on a daily basis while simultaneously getting out of debt is quite the feat. In fact, one might even think that our plate was full and there was no way that any more chaos could fit on it. However, I've learned that God's ways don't always fit into our perfectly planned agenda. Chaos and pain never follow a rule book. We were about to find out exactly how much of each we could handle. The morning of October 11th, 2010, was a beautiful morning. Streams of sunlight glistened through our windows and the air was still. It was one of those perfect weather days. I wasn't scheduled to work until noon, so I spent all morning in prayer. Now, this prayer time was different than the brief prayers I've had in the past. This was bold and on fire. It brought about a peaceful sense of expectation in my heart that stirred me to the very core. As I paced the hallway of our three-bedroom apartment, Ajabi, our six-and-a-half-year-old Shih Tzu, lounged on the back of her favorite plush celadon green microfiber chair. She rested there, Static, with only her big puppy eyes peeled on me, following my every move. 
We had moved into this apartment only 15 months earlier as part of our we're broke, this means war game plan to pay off our debt and change our lifestyle. After looking at several pet-friendly apartments in our area, we decided on the Galleria. With spacious floor plans and an indoor pool, it was the Taj Mahal of pet-friendly apartments. Living in a pet-friendly community has its ups and downs. It wasn't uncommon to have a surprise turd left in the hallway by some four-legged friend who couldn't quite make it to the potty area. I'm not proud of this, but I once walked off the elevator after a long, hard day of work, only to be greeted by a cute little puppy wandering down the hall alone. He decided that the best way to say hello was to jump on my legs and mark me as his personal territory, peeing all over my brand new shoes. Have you ever walked down a hallway with warm dog pee dripping around your feet and into your shoes? I'm sure I looked like I had just had an accident in my pants as I slowly waddled down the hall. Like I said, pet-friendly communities have their ups and downs. But despite these sometimes hazardous conditions, we loved the Galleria. Our home there was a three-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment with cathedral ceilings. The overly-sized furniture we owned, of which had a price tag that was much too high for a couple in their 20s to pay for, but we were young and our priorities were a bit out of whack. It fit the space well. And it turned out to be quite a cozy atmosphere for hosting gatherings with close friends. Yes, the Galleria was a wonderful place to live. As I prayed that morning, I thanked God for moving us there and for changing our hearts, freeing us from the bondage of materialism that had kept us blinded and unhappy for years. Several times the Holy Spirit prompted me to do things that were out of the ordinary for me. I walked into our bedroom praying for my husband, and I saw his wedding ring sitting on his nightstand. I usually didn't make a habit of walking over to his nightstand, but that morning his ring caught my eye. My first thought was, that does not belong there. Nate, my wonderful husband of eight years at the time, was a contractor, so he rarely wore his wedding ring during the week in order to avoid possible injury. I was slightly irritated that he hadn't taken the time to put it in its correct place. So I picked up his ring and walked over to my jewelry stand, opened the top mirror, and placed his ring in the ring holder. Then I closed the top and continued praying. I felt an urge to pull out my notes from a seminar I had attended several months earlier. The topic was praying with boldness. There were some key points that I wanted to be able to see every day, so I spent some time writing them out in bright markers on the marker board that was hanging on our wall in the hallway. As I went through my notes, I thought to myself, what better way to start practicing bold prayers than right now? And that's exactly what I did. I prayed so boldly that I could feel a fire burning in my belly and stirring in the depths of my soul. What happened next was nothing short of a move of God. The words flew out of my mouth before I even knew what was happening. 
The last thing I prayed that morning was this. Lord, I don't care if you strip me of everything I own. I will still praise you because what you did on the cross is enough. Talk about bold prayers. Little did I know that by the end of the day, I would find out if I really meant that prayer. Right before I went to work that day, I got on my Facebook page and posted a status update. It simply said this, Today is going to be a great day. It's funny to think about now because it actually was a great day. It was the night that was awful. It became the worst night of my life and forever changed the course of our path. It ruined me. It ruined me good. Around four in the afternoon, I stopped back at home to let Aja be out. I was in a hurry because I needed to get back to work, so I was busy multitasking, not really paying attention to her. She was dilly-dallying in the grass and taking her sweet time. I had to tug her leash several times, saying, Come on, Aja B, I don't have time for this. Silly. We adults get so wrapped up in our own agenda that we simply forget about the things that matter in life. Poor Aja B. She just wanted to spend some time outside in the sunshine. She just wanted to stop and smell the roses. I was robbing her of that, all because I had to hurry up and get back to work. When we finally got upstairs, I rushed into the kitchen to grab her a treat. She just stood there with her fluffy ears and big brown eyes staring at me, as if to say, Mom, don't you want to hug me? I miss you. What did I do wrong? I didn't even say goodbye to her like I normally do. I couldn't. I was in a hurry. Besides, she'd understand. Okay, now, maybe you aren't a pet person, and if you're not, that's okay. But I have always been a dog person, and Ajabi is like my kid. We picked her out when she was just two weeks old, and we had her since she was seven weeks old. She is our kid. She's family. I shut the door and turned the key, with Ajabi still staring at me with a sad look in her eyes. Only a few steps away from the door, something urged me to check on my curling iron. You know, in case of a fire. So I walked back, opened up the door, and began to walk inside. I was immediately greeted by Ajabi, her tail wagging. Then I remembered that my hair was in a ponytail that day, and I hadn't used a curling iron. Silly me, I was just being paranoid. I said goodbye to Ajabi, shut the door, turned the key, and walked away without petting her goodbye. Again. At six o'clock, just two hours later, I received a phone call from my grandpa. I usually don't answer personal calls when I'm at work, but this was just a little odd that he would be calling me at this time of day when he knew that I was working, so I answered it. The conversation went something like this. Hello? Yeah, Mandy? It's Grandpa. Did you know that your apartment is on fire? He asked in a panicked tone. Grandma and Grandpa lived right across the street from us and made sure to let us know if they ever saw something fishy. What? I replied in a tone of disbelief. Where's Aja? 
she's in it? My thoughts began frantically screaming, this can't be real. It's probably just one apartment that is on fire. The firefighters will put it out shortly and everything will be fine. Well, I will see if I can get a fireman to go up there. It's bad, Mandy. I'll do what I can, but it's really bad. Grandpa said with sadness in his voice. Okay, I'm on my way, I replied. I hung up the phone and continued wrestling with the thoughts in my head. I better call our resident manager to see what is going on. If it was really that bad, I'm sure he would have called me by now. After briefly speaking with our resident manager, my fears were confirmed. It was true. Our building was on fire and the third floor was burning up with the ceiling caving in and flames coming out of the windows. We lived on the third floor. My whole body felt heavy. I don't remember everything that happened next. I know that I ran out of the building frantically without even recognizing who I was running past. My chest was heavy and I felt like I had been punched in the stomach. It was hard to breathe, hard to see the road as I drove. I only lived about three miles away from work and as soon as I stepped outside, I could see the thick black smoke climbing through the sky. It was so high that people driving on interstate a few blocks away pulled over to watch and speculate with horror-stricken faces. I tried calling Nate as I drove, but I just couldn't reach him. By the time I reached the road to our apartment, I knew that Grandpa wasn't kidding. It was bad. The Galleria was built like a hotel in the shape of a U. In fact, it looked more like a hotel than an apartment. Thick smoke billowed through the sky and giant orange flames jumped toward the clouds, tearing down our roof on their way up. Our third-story cathedral ceiling apartment was turning into nothing but ashes. The whole time, all I could think was that my Ajabi was in there and I couldn't rescue her. I tried to explain all of this to Nate when he called me back, but the words that were in my head didn't come out right. He finally understood the mumbo-jumbo phrases I tried to speak and headed home for an hour drive while I was left feeling like a horrible fur baby parent. There was a thick knot in my throat and a very painful hole in my heart as I imagined my poor little puppy suffocating and then her little body being burned. It was beyond what I could bear. Nate had advised me to get to my parents' house and stay there until he arrived. I'm not sure how, but I managed to reach their driveway without injuring myself or anyone else on the road. The entire 10-minute trip there was done in a bewildered stupor that I don't remember. My parents met me outside. They had seen the smoke, so they knew something was up. They knew it was coming from near our apartment. I sat on the concrete and stared at the smoke with tears streaming down my face. My mom picked me up and helped me into the living room, where I finally crumbled onto the floor with a huge, wailing cry. Earlier that day, I had read a quote. It was a quote at my chiropractor's office, and it said, Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. 
As the memory of those words danced upon my heart, I did the only thing I knew to do. I thanked God for Ajabi and told him how sad I was that she wouldn't see her seventh birthday, but that I was so happy that I got to be her mommy for six and a half years. And then everything went numb. Grief is heavy, dark, unpredictable. There are no rules for grieving. As women, our emotions make us beautiful and complex. Yet many times, those emotions make it harder to bounce back when our world comes crumbling down. We grieve not only the loss of human life, but also the loss of what used to be. We grieve our dreams, our hopes, our comfort zones. We even grieve the fur babies that we're lucky enough to take care of and call family. However, we must remember that grieving is a necessary part of the process of becoming an overcomer. Whether our lives went up in literal flames or in figurative ones, there will be a grieving process. We can't rush it. We have to let it run its course. We have to let every obstacle we face sink in to the depths of our hearts. That's what overcomers do. On the evening of October 11th, 2010, my real journey of becoming an overcomer began. Cystic fibrosis, debt, and the apartment fire all snowballed into one giant pile of ashes that demanded to be dealt with. God was teaching me something through this season. He was teaching me that I was born to overcome. And so were you. A few months later, after we had moved into a new apartment, I found myself flipping through the pages of my Bible. My fingers found their way to the book of Revelation, and I began to read. The words, to him who overcomes, jumped from the pages and grabbed my attention. In chapters 2 and 3, this phrase is mentioned seven times. When God repeats something, it is worth paying attention to. Over the next few years, I found myself studying these verses, drinking them in. My soul was refreshed, renewed, and challenged by the instructions within these pages. I desperately wanted to know what it took to be an overcomer. The ashes in my own life were choking me at times, and the only comfort I could find to rise up and keep going came from these chapters. I wanted to be a she who overcomes. This book you're listening to is about the story that God has written in my life. It is also a chance to discover the story he is writing in your life. As we move forward through the process of becoming an overcomer, I will be peeling back the layers of my life as it began to unfold into this new territory of rising up out of the ashes. I promise to be vulnerable with you, but I'm also asking that you make me a promise, or better yet, a promise to yourself, that you will be vulnerable, too, with yourself. That you will courageously dig deep 
and ask God for guidance and wisdom as He helps you through this process. We will be back with another episode for you next week. For now, if you would take a moment and write a review or subscribe to the podcast, that means the world to those of us who work so hard to produce every single episode. For more information, go to BigBlueCouchCoaching.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram under Big Blue Couch Coaching. A shout out to my hubby, Mr. Nate Anderson, for editing this podcast. And most importantly, I hope that you found something today that gave you the courage to rise up and overcome that thing that you've been facing. You're stronger than you think. I'll see you next week.